Hey, everybody, this is Jen here from Get Outside with Kids. We're excited to have you back for another episode of Why Spending Time with Kids Outside is Important. And we've got some exciting things coming your way on this one. Today, we're joined by a guest who's actually really local to us. We're thrilled to meet uh, somebody from our local community here. Lauren McLean is a mentoring support teacher for the Coquitlam School District. She's the host of the Mentoring Nature Connections podcast, where she interviews educators from across North America on their outdoor learning experiences. She's also the author of the children's picture book, Me and My Sit Spot, which helps introduce this nature routine to young kids and their families. And on the weekends, you often find her and her two young toddlers exploring in their forest playground. Welcome to the podcast, Lauren. Hi, thanks so much, ladies. It's wonderful to be here. So tell us, Lauren, why is getting outside with kids so important to you? Well, there's almost too many reasons for me to list, so I'm going to do my best to be concise. For me right now, especially as a mother, it's a lot about freedom, uh, imagination, developing their gross motor skills and their social interactions between themselves, but also with me so that we're, we're engaging in all these playful activities outside rain, shine, all seasons. And we're developing that relationship with ourself by uh, risky play, by testing our limits, by engaging in different reasoning skills. Can I climb this? Can I jump over this? And so again, that connection to self, that connection to each other, brother and sister, because I've got two little young ones and connection with myself and my husband. And then I think the most important thing is this connection to nature. I think my biggest thing that changed my course of thinking was when I read uh, Richard Louv's book, Last Child in the Woods. This idea of nature deficit disorder was just mind-blowing to me. And it seems so simple and obvious in hindsight. Yet when I read it, I just thought, how have I not been doing this every day of my teaching career? Yeah, no, I think that book was such a game changer for a lot of people. I think it was one of the actually like the founding books that first gave a name to this. Like it becomes obvious, like you said, when you look at it, we're all spending so much time on screens and and screens can be wonderful. I mean, the three of us here are all sitting in our pajamas uh, in our right. house, you know, and that's <laughs> wonderful that we can do that screens enable us to do that. But we're also fully formed adults who are at a different brain development stage. And then we look at our kids and they're on screens more and more. And certainly this last year, if you've had school-age children and navigating a school on Zoom, all the challenges with came with that. And this is really the first book that put a name to it. Well, I think you brought us up a really great point with the idea of screen time, because right now we sort of, especially in the education system, it's a tool for learning. It's not the learning. I'm using technology right now to communicate with you and so that I'm learning and we're learning from each other. And we use nature as a tool to connect with each other and to connect with the land as well. So I think it's just us switching our mindset. The other part with the Nature Deficit Disorder book was this idea of allowing kids the time and the freedom and the space for them to follow their own passions. And I think, well, actually, I don't know who the other quote was, but maybe it was David Sobel said, we need to allow kids to spend time in nature before we ask them to care for it. And I think that's exactly what Richard Liu was getting at, is that we need the time to allow the kids to follow their own passions so that they can become their own person. It's really interesting, Lauren, because that book, Last Child in the Woods, as many parents probably, it changed my parenting, um, I think, a lot. I read it, I think my my first kid was just a baby. And I work in the sort of uh, environmental education world as well, but in a nonprofit sense. And yeah, it was kind of mind-blowing because so much of this stuff is like, once you read it, you're like, it sort of seems intuitive. Like, 
we should be spending more time outside. And you're like, of course, but why didn't I think of it like this? And, and um, yeah, definitely recommend that book as like one of the foundations for this whole sort of nature, um, time outside movement in the modern kind of era, I'd say. But I'm really interested in how you apply that as a teacher. You know, traditionally in teaching settings, you're thinking of kids in classrooms. And as far as I know, there aren't a lot of outdoor classrooms in Coquitlam, um, if any. How do you take what you want to apply from being outside in nature and apply it to an education setting. Such a good point because I think most of the research in outdoor learning is all early childhood. So most of the books, I mean, I've got stacks of books in front of me and they are all forest preschools, nature preschools. And we do have some wonderful ones in Coquitlam. The Collective is a wonderful company that's quite new. I was lucky when I was teaching in the classroom, I was a primary teacher, mostly in kindergarten. And so there's this assumption that in the primary years, we get to do more play-based learning. It seemed as acceptable. And then for whatever reason, either our own expectations on ourselves, uh, the curriculum expectations is that there's just so much more learning that needs to be done. It's It gets more intense and scaffolded that we can't play because we need to get the work done. So I'm very lucky as a mentoring support teacher, I'm now working with all different grades from K to eight. Working with those intermediate and middle school teachers has been a really interesting opportunity for them to see how play is where emergent learning comes from. So it's not necessarily that I have to have the plan when I go outside, I always do have a plan. I'm I'm looking at seasonal um, relationships. What's the weather happening? I'm looking at my curriculum. So I always have something in my back pocket. But when I go outside with a group of grade sevens and they notice something, I'm going to let them play with it. And I'm not going to intervene right away because it's that play that brings up their learning. And I can sort of figure out by watching them where they actually want to go instead of inserting, oh, I think you should be learning about this. So I'm going to jump in. And that's been a really interesting growth for myself. And I think for the educators that I'm working with. You tell us a little bit more about some of the types of school lessons you can take outside. I think what you've said really, we have preschool age kids, Jen and I, and Mm -hmm. and you as well, Lauren. Um, And so I'm not in the education system. I haven't really thought about what happens after, you know, play stops, <laughs> you know, like you say, after this age where people start to think you don't play as much. So I'm, like you say, I'm thinking a lot in those kind of early childhood years, but what sorts of school lessons could you take outside? What, like when you look at the world around you, where, what kind of inspiration can you take from natural patterns, for example, or that kind of thing, and, and to be able to deliver school lessons outside? That's a really great question. So again, I'm working with a lot of um, younger primary teachers in kindergarten, grade one, and a lot of our curriculum in science is about plants and animals have observable features. So that's really open-ended. So we went outside the last few days, we did a little walking tour of their school grounds, and we just stopped and looked and what is the shape of a dandelion leaf? It looks like arrows. They're sort of stacked on top of each other like a Christmas tree. Close your eyes. Try to imagine what it looks like. There's also an imposter dandelion, and it's called hairy cat's ear. So it looks identical, except that the leaves are a little more bubbly. And instead of the stem and one flower, 
as the dandelion has, the hairy cat's ear has a stem and it branches and it has two flowers, but the flowers look identical. So we can go and explore and look for the imposter plants. So it's a really fun way to make plants a little more exciting because it can be a little on the bland side. And I'm, I take no offense. I understand where that's coming from, but there's a lot of ways that we can make plants exciting for the kids to learn about. The majority of my job is around mathematics. So I work a lot with, uh, again, the primary teachers with looking at shapes out in nature, counting out in nature. So today I was with a group of grade two students and we were looking at salmon berries and salmon berry leaves always grow in groups of three. So they grow side by side and they look like a butterfly. And then there's one on top. And the petals always have groups of five. And so, again, we're doing all this counting and matching. And is there anything similar? Oh, look over there. There's the native plum plant. And it has clusters of flowers, but they also have five petals. So we're doing all this connection between the plants, identifying them, counting them, sorting them into groups. So there's a lot of science and math connections that we can make. And then for my amazing friends that I work up at the board office who are very artistically gifted. I rely on them. So they come outside with me and we work uh, with collecting loose parts and making mandalas. Can we do some steam challenges and make shelters for different sized animals? So there's it. I just feel like the sky's the limit. I really love all those examples. And I think especially you take a topic like math. I mean, some kids love math. A lot of kids don't because it can be boring. Let's be mm-hmm. honest. I'm not a numbers person. I'm in the creative no, space. Jen, maths is amazing. <laughs> so I had an engineering degree. I love math. Okay, that's true. Physics Kate, is the Kate, best Kate, thing in the world, you know. Okay. Kate's the exception here. Okay, Kate, you're you're the exception to the rule. Most people don't like math unless you're an engineer like Kate. Uh, but for the rest of us, non-engineers, like I hated math growing up. I had to take a lot of it with my degree, but I hated it. But I think of at a young age, if you can kind of instill some fun into math and make it more tangible, right? Like math at the early ages can be so abstract, but when you're using nature to make it tangible again in a fun way, like I'd way rather go outside and count salmonberry leaves and be stuck inside doing a worksheet, just counting to 10, right? So I love that kind of bringing it outside. One of the questions I I have is, you know, I think we're seeing a lot more, all kinds of learning challenges in the classroom, a lot of, you know, ADD, ADHD. And do you work with those kids? And I'd love to hear, you know, how getting outside in some of those cases might help some of those learning challenges as well in the classroom. Yeah, it is. It's definitely something that we have to front load the expectations for all our learners. So especially as a visiting teacher, when I'm coming in, they don't know me. Uh, the, the learners don't know me very well. So it's a really great opportunity for me to start very slow with the teacher I'm working with, but also with the learners. So I will say, we're going to go out for a short period of time. So when we first go outside, it's really easy for us to start slowly. We're going to go outside. It's going to be exciting. So we are going to allow free time, free space, movement, because you walk in or you walk outside And there's this huge grass field. No, don't go play. Come sit and listen. Listen to me. Don't look at that bird. Listen to me. That is torture. No matter if you're five years old, 13 years old, even for me, I'm not going to say how old I am, but it would be torture for me as well. (laughs) I also need to run around and sort of fill that big space with my big energy because I do have big energy. So I get it. Let's go run around. Again, it can be free play, but it could also be a guided game. There's lots of really great nature games that we can play that still teaches you a little bit about plants or animals. We could play tree tag. 
So to be safe, everybody has to touch a cedar tree. Okay, now the next round is to be safe. You have to touch a hemlock tree. So there's a lot of ways that you can still engage in nature learning by running around. Once they've had that time to express their bodies and work on their gross motor skills, then we can come back and it's a lot easier to focus. I also know there is a lot of research out there that does support that outdoor learning corresponds with good grades inside the classroom. They're able to focus. They're able to, their reasoning skills are usually quite good. Their communication skills are usually quite elevated as well. So there's so many positives for being out in nature. I just, for me, it's sort of a no-brainer. When you think about that, Lauren, if your school, for example, if you're fortunate enough to be listening in and your school has an outdoor classroom um, or you know that the kids are able to do nature lessons outside, like amazing. But I think probably for a lot of people listening um, and in general for a lot of people in our community, their children don't have access to that type of learning. You know, is free play on the weekends outside and before and after school, is that enough? Is that, you know, what can we do to, to sort of to, to foster that, knowing that in some cases it's not likely that our kids are going to be taken outside for their lessons at school? Right. And again, that almost makes me so sad because I think you're true. I think, I think it, that's exactly right. So if we can go outside and just be outside with our kids. So I, I will tell a funny story. And I didn't ask my husband permission to tell the story. So oops. But we went perfect. And we, <laughs> we like those ones. <laughs> so we took our two young kids in the summer. So that would have been a two and a half year old and almost a one year old. And we took them down by Coquitlam River. So there's a beaut- there's lots of different spaces where you can go there. And he wanted to bring the wagon with shovels and bubbles and chalk and uh, scoops and bowls. And I was start. I could feel myself getting like a little flustered. <laughs> we don't need all of this. We literally need our hats and a water bottle, maybe a snack, and that's it. And so we sort of went back and forth and note, we brought all the stuff out with us and it never got used. Because all they needed was that water rushing past them, a very small little patch of sandy beach, because then we could sort of keep them contained. They couldn't wander off too far, but that's all they needed. They needed their hands to dig in the sand. They needed a couple of big rocks so they could scoop up the sand and dump it onto the rocks. That's all they needed. So there's a lot of over planning. There's a lot to be said for just letting them explore all in themselves. And if they need something else afterwards, once you notice that their energies may be wavering or stagnating, then introduce a material. I think you bring up a really good point about the access to different spaces as well. So in Coquitlam or in the Tri-Cities, there are a lot of schools that do back onto green belts, but there's a lot of urban schools that have the gravel field, 10 maple trees out by the front because they've been planted by the city. And that's almost all they have. And so what else could we do to add nature to their school grounds? We can bring in gardening boxes. We can... Uh, we can still use the gravel pitches and we can practice tracking animals. So we can go make our own animal tracks and then try to make a maze. So we can still think outside of the box, even when we're in those concrete jungle type of places. So Lauren, I'd love you to tell us a little bit about your book, where the idea came from, why you decided why you decided to write it. So my book was really inspired by two different people. 
I worked for Soaring Eagle Nature School in North Vancouver, and I was matched up with a nature mentor, and her name's Jenna Rudolph. She's actually the founder of Soaring Eagle. And she was the one that introduced me to the sit spot in the first place. Now, the sit spot is a really originated from the Wilderness Awareness School by John Young. So it's it's not too far away. It's just down on the other side of the border from us in Duval, Washington. And the essence of a sit spot is that it is a place that we get to visit repeatedly so that we can sit quietly, we can observe, we can again connect to ourself, we can connect to nature. And it's all about calmness and stillness and mindfulness. So for me, who is quite high energy, a sit spot has been a really challenging activity for me. Me, me sitting still is very rare. <laughs> and so I feel like I Lauren, that- me and you would be the same on that. I'm Kate can testify that I'm not a very still person with most no. things. Jen has a lot of energy. You can hear it. She talks fast. <laughs> Apologies to listeners who've said Jen talks pretty fast, but that's just Jen's energy. That's just how she is. And I'm sort of the same. I, I talk quick because I get really excited. And for me, that it was almost that challenge that made me love sit spots so much because I almost felt embarrassed as an adult how many things I had not noticed in my own backyard, or as we call like our little forested playground back here, which is a very small little section of forested cedar trees. So again, when I was on mat leave, I was feeling this connection because of COVID. I was feeling this desire to help, I guess, help myself sort of come to terms with what a sit spot is and and how it can help me in my personal life and in my professional life, but also how can I help give back to the people that are sort of in my mentoring circle. And that's sort of where the mentoring nature connections comes from, is I am still being mentored by many people. And so because I'm so grateful and lucky with how many mentors I have, I think it's so important to sort of give back. And so that was the main reason that I wanted to sort of write this book and share how to find a sit spot and how we can sort of allow that nature routine to sort of run its course. Because it's not something that needs to be done, A and then B and then C. It's very open-ended. The book gives examples that, yes, it could be in a grass field, but it could also be from your window. A lot of our learners here do live in apartments and big, tall sky rises. Well, you can still have a sit spot from your window. So it really trying to open the door to seeing how accessible sit spots can be. Okay. So I have to ask, Lauren, Where's your sit spot? Are you able to share with us? (laughs) I can. And I do have a couple actually. Okay. Yeah. So uh, again, mine, my first one that I go to every day is when I wake up before my kids do so I can have my own quiet time and read my book. It is my window downstairs. So it overlooks into our little garden area. So we've got our raspberries and our blackberries and our blueberries. So I just sort of sit there and I stare out the window there. If I have time and I've got a babysitter, I can walk three minutes down the road, again, to our little forested playground. And it's right by a little river, uh, Noons Creek. And it's I just get to go off a little gravel path. And when I sit there, I am by two nurse logs that are growing salal, they're growing hemlock. There's always juncos jumping around by my feet. I've got lots of different types of ferns. I mean, I get so excited talking about it because I can literally close my eyes and look northwest, southeast, and I can see everything that grows there. And so for me, that's so special 
because I know that place so well. Jen, I see a challenge here for you and me where we go out and do this because as Jen has mentioned, you're not much of a sitter still kind of person, not much of a sitting still kind of person, Jen. And uh, we've been to yoga before and I think your least favorite parts like at the end when everyone's meditating a little bit maybe. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, sounds about right. Except, Kate, if me and you went together, we would just talk the whole time. That would be the other time. Yeah, but shut up. We actually we'd have to go, go a bit together. further apart. But, yeah, uh, we'd have to separate our sit spots. <laughs> but Lauren, can you tell us a little bit about your kids' experience with the sit spot then? You know, as, as an adult, it's definitely a challenging thing to sit still. But how have you found kids have responded to the book and to the idea? It is very hard for kids to sit still. So in John Young's book, Coyote's Guide to Connecting with Nature, he actually gives a lot of suggestions on how to make a sit spot a little more playful. So it's almost like this trickster. So we're going to play some games, sort of like hide and seek. So we're going to go hide in the forest and you need to sit still and I'm going to look for you. And then all of a sudden, there's my little three-year-old and he's sitting still because he's hiding from me. And then when he comes back, I say, Grayson, that was your sit spot. You did that for 30 seconds. That was amazing. And so there's a lot of fun games that you can play to sort of trick them into practicing sit spot. So the more that we can play those games and he can see sort of the the value and and the comfort of being down low, because he's three, he's a pretty typical toddler. He doesn't like to get dirty. But again, if it's a game, he has no issue squatting down and getting onto his hands and his knees. But again, as soon as that game's over, he wants to wipe his hands off. He's not very very impressed. (laughs) Thinking about that, Lauren, you know, whenever you get outside with kids, things get messy. Um, And when you're getting outside with entire classrooms of kids, things can get, uh, I'm sure they can go wrong. Uh, (laughs) You share some stories with us of when things have gone uh, not according to plan with classrooms of kids who you've been taking outside. We all love a good fail story. And this story, to this day, I can, I can replay the entire half an hour from start to finish, no problem. So this was maybe six years ago, and I was still teaching in the Richmond district. And I was co-teaching with my friend, April Pickerinen. So we had two kindergarten classrooms, K-1s, 44 students. Those are young kids two teachers, and we had three visiting teachers from a different district to watch how we ran our outdoor program. So we're going for our little nature walk. And in Richmond in February, we have a lot of snow geese. They cover the field. It's all you can see is white. And I'm standing at the back while April was showing some kids some, I think she was showing them some bulbs in the ground. So she was down low and I'm at the back with the group. And of course, I have by my side, one of the most cutest, smallest little kindergarten kids who's a little anxious. So he's always sticking pretty close to me. And I'm talking to the visiting teachers about the snow geese and, oh, you know, it's, it's a bit hard. We'll just have to walk around the other side of the field to get to the clean area of the grass. And then a dog ran through the playground off leash, spooked our snow geese. And so all you hear is, and then a pow. There is a huge bang. There are sparks. There are full snow geese bodies falling from the ground. There are bits and pieces of snow geese falling from the ground. There are burning feathers. So you can smell the burnt feathers. The snow geese had grounded themselves from the ground to the power lines. I couldn't count how many dead snow geese there were. But you can imagine the 
fear of 44 <laughs> kindergarten students turning around and seeing all this oh mayhem. So Sika. the crying <laughs> and the poor little boy that's around my leg is hugging me so desperately. And so, okay, it's okay, kids. We're just going to go back in the classroom. So we get, get everybody get inside, in. Get inside. Get inside. It's <laughs> the end of the world. <laughs> but the next layer is all the power in the entire uh, neighborhood went out. So now all the lights are blinking <laughs> when better. we get inside the it's school. It's the end of the world. Oh, <laughs> those poor monkeys. So I can't believe that the, so the snow geese basically just flew into power lines and yeah. oh my gosh. And because there were so many of them, they were all, they were all touching. So they had grounded themselves. And so and they just all got electrocuted. And that was oh the last time those kids ever went outside, I guess. <laughs> they never went outside again. <laughs> they never looked at snow geese the same way. Oh my gosh. They, you don't either. The smell of no. burning snow geese bodies. I mean, that's got to stick with you. <laughs> it was awful. So needless to say, we had to phone the parents to come to school a bit early so that we could talk to the parents. Get and some grief counselors in. <laughs> well, a little bit. Like, you know that a five-year-old is going to have nightmares about that, right? Yeah, so and I have a lot of questions, a lot of questions. I might have a nightmare about that tonight, Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) So I was a bit too detailed. (laughs) No, I mean, me and Kate always like to share kind of what we call like the worst possible scenario. And so this is like the pretty worst possible scenario that could happen. I think it's the worst we've heard. (laughs) This is the worst by far. You win by far. Dead birds of 44 kids. (laughs) Yeah, hundreds of dead birds. But hopefully, maybe because it comes a couple of days, they did recover. You as teachers were able to recover, move on. You didn't like get fired from this outdoor program. (laughs) So it all worked out in the end, kind of, except for the snow geese, who it did not work out. It didn't work out. Did not work out for them. So I kind of wanted to kind of circle back to if you, let's say, were at a school who doesn't have, you know, a you there with this amazing nature program, are there things as parents we could do to try and get people like you at the school or to lobby the district? Or like, how do those first steps work to get you into our classrooms if you're in a community where, where you don't have a Lauren coming in to teach these outdoor programs? The biggest key is to just email and look up our website and contact us to see if we can come into your spaces. Because I think the more that we can get into new schools and new sites, grow our community, we can go in and do a pro D for a whole school. We can do weekend events with families and kids. We're doing a ready, set, learn right now in our district where I'm bringing out families outside with a couple of their educators and we're doing math story walks. There's so many options that we can do. So what I would suggest is going up onto the website, which is mentoringnatureconnections.ca and contacting uh, us through that website. We also have our social media handles. So on Twitter, I'm at LK McLean, which is M-A-C. L-E-A-N. And on Instagram, I'm Mentoring Nature Connections. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I think we've had so many good tips here today. Um, And as me and Kate said, we're going to be navigating the school starting this September, actually. So lots of big changes ahead. Um, And you've really given me a lot to think about how you're right. Like right now, our children are in daycare and there's a certain amount of outside time and we have a lot more flexibility and it is just play-based learning. There's some learning that's happening, but a lot of play. And it does make me kind of think a lot more about for school, how can we make sure that we're advocating for more play-based learning, that they are getting those outside hours, and that then as parents, we're still doing our best to, when they come home from school, have that time to decompress and get outside as well. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And I think, A, the fact that you have this podcast is going to be that rock 
that is going to ripple effect, especially in our local community. And we, we live quite close together, actually. I'm just up the mountain. And so it's really exciting that you have this ability to reach people in our community and I'm sure across quite a wide range of an audience. And so I think this is just going to be that slow burn that the more people listen to you. I mean, I listened to your last episode with Jane. Oh, amazing. It was fantastic. And the, so again, the more that we can share out those episodes and those resources, I think that's going to really make a big difference. Thanks for that, Lord. And if you do want to find out more about what we're doing here, you can follow us on Instagram at Get Outside With Kids. We publish new episodes every week. You can get them right from the link in a bio. Of course, you can follow us on wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that be Apple or Spotify. And most importantly, we'd love to hear back from you. What would you like to learn more about getting out with kids outside? Send us a DM or an email and maybe we'll have you on one of our upcoming episodes. Thanks again. And we'll see you back next week.